Hey folks, listen up. I want to tell you about this amazing service called OneRep. OneRep removes your private information from Google and more than 150 people search sites. If you've ever gone through the painstaking task of requesting for those people search sites like PeopleFinder to remove your information, then you know firsthand how sucky that is. And if you haven't done it before, then you're leaving your privacy up for grabs. Herein enters OneRep. OneRep will do all the heavy lifting for you so that you never have to bother sending in any letters of request or submitting a form online. They even send you a detailed report every month that tells you exactly how many sites your information has been found on, how many sites it has been removed from, and how many more are left to go. And here's the best part for me. You can even protect your family of up to six people by choosing OneRep's family plan. This is what I use to protect my family's privacy and I could not be happier. So I want to extend this offer for you to try OneRep for yourself and get up to 60% off. You heard that right. I said 60%, not five, not 10, but 60. Take advantage of this discount and click on the link in the show notes to start securing your privacy today. Hey listeners, I'm so happy to be back with a brand new episode, as promised, after taking the whole month of February off. When I tell you I needed that break, that is an understatement. Working my day job, producing this podcast, and taking care of my family definitely exhausted me on every level, but I'm happy to say I'm feeling refreshed and ready to get started. So let's get into it. When 14-year-old Nicole Smith headed home after realizing she forgot her homework, it would be the last thing she'd ever do because on her way back, she was viciously attacked and killed. Her homicide investigation spanned more than two decades, and while investigators continued the hunt for Nicole's killer, they discovered another victim, this time a 13-year-old rape survivor. With the help of the revolutionary genealogical DNA testing that continues to bring closure to many cold cases, the murderous perpetrator would finally be revealed. I'm Renetta Rideout, and this is Misogynoir Murders. It was Wednesday, June 7, 1995. Aquanella told Angeline Hartman in the true crime production Inside Crime how that morning went before the girls left for school. Aquanella was engaged in a conversation with her 14-year-old daughter, Nicole, as she and her sister, Nikita, got ready for school. Apparently, this was a good time for Nicole to tell her mom she didn't much care for who her choice of fiancé was. Keep in mind, this was an easy conversation between these two. While that may be a taboo topic for other people, this was definitely not strange for Aquanella and Nicole. It was basically just morning banter and chatter between mother and daughter, so Aquanella wasn't offended at all 
or particularly concerned. She told Nicole that those kids, her included, never liked anything or anyone that took time away from them. And, you know, we get it, they're kids. So they giggled and laughed, and that was that. The conversation carried on. The next topic of discussion was Nicole's hair. So Nicole loved to rock a high ponytail. And hey, it was the 90s. Everyone wore ponytails. Whether they were high, low, or to the side, folks wore them. And Nicole was no different. But Aquanella was a little tired of seeing the same old hairstyle on Nicole. So she suggested that, hey, maybe Nicole should give that ponytail a break. And instead, she suggested that Nicole curl her hair for a new look. Again, the two of them laughed and bantered back and forth. And Nicole laughed as she headed to the bathroom to get started on her hair. But something that Aquanella said made her stop, turn on her heel, and look at her mom thoughtfully. Aquanella recalled during that interview that she must have said something that stopped Nicole, but whatever it was prompted Nicole to tell her mom, quote, Mom, you're crazy, but I love you anyway, end quote. And she continued on into the bathroom to get started. Not long after that conversation, Nicole, Nikita, and a friend headed to school. As the teens walked and chatted, Nicole realized she'd forgotten an assignment for class. Rather than risk receiving her lower grade, Nicole decided to head home to retrieve the project. You see, Nicole was a grade A student. She performed well in all of her classes, and she actually aspired to be a pediatrician when she grew up. She knew she was going places, and she wanted to do big things, and all that began with her current school work. So with that, Nicole told her sister and her friend that she needed to run home real quick, but she would catch up with them. So the two girls walked on and figured that, yeah, Nicole would be right back. But Nicole never came back. And so I wasn't able to find anything about this in any of the source material, but I just assumed that Nikita and their friend just decided to go ahead and proceed going to school. And they figured, well... Nicole got caught up a little longer than she expected. She'll be here. I don't know how come they didn't come back or if they did kind of walk back and then change their mind. I don't know. But it is something that as I researched this case, I wondered about. Anyway, around 920 that morning, Aquanella heard two gunshots fired from somewhere nearby. She had no idea what happened or who was involved, But Aquanella's motherly instinct was kicking in, and she just remembers feeling a sudden and persistent pain in her head. It was the first sign that something was terribly wrong. Aquanella wasn't the only one who heard those shots. Other people in the complex heard them too, and they reported them to the apartment security. Instead of calling the police, the building security team was dispatched, and I say team loosely. It was really just a couple of guys who set out to locate where the shots came from. But I guess as they were heading in that direction, they had a wake-up call and realized that they weren't really trained to handle situations like those. So they ran back to the office and actually called the police. I don't know exactly how much time passed between when the shots were reported and when security ran back to the office. But 
I can only imagine precious time was lost. By the time the police arrived on the scene, there was no shooter in sight. Instead, there lay the body of sweet Nicole in the woods. The detective who arrived at the crime scene was Reginald Boone. Detective Boone initially had the impression that whatever had happened wasn't that serious. Now, when I heard Detective Boone say that in the interview with Inside Crime, I thought, well, why wouldn't he think it's serious? Hello, gunshots. But then I remembered this was Georgia, so there are a lot of wooded areas around. I know that there are times for hunting, people doing target practice, like whatever. It may have been, you know, normal, or at least probably wasn't all that uncommon to hear gunshots occasionally coming from the woods. I don't know, but that's just my speculation. However, as soon as Detective Boone arrived, he could see that this situation was far more serious than he could have imagined. After the shock of finding this young girl's body, Detective Boone hurried to check for a pulse. But sadly, there was not one. And while horrifying, this is not something that surprised Detective Boone. You see, she wasn't just shot in the chest or maybe in the leg. She was shot twice in the face. And seeing something like that on such a young girl, I can only imagine how jarring and, quite frankly, chilling that must have been. Immediately after realizing this young victim was gone, Detective Boone radioed for help, relaying that he'd found the body of a girl. And not long after that call for assistance, Detective Boone's lieutenant arrived and they cordoned off the area with the police tape and the investigation began. At 11.45 a.m., just under two and a half hours after she'd heard the gunshots, Aquanella heard the knock on her door. When she went to answer it, she faced two people who identified themselves as police officers. Now, no one expects to get that knock on the door, so initially, Aquanella was confused about what they could want. The officers began by saying they'd found a body in the woods and they wanted to know if she had a daughter named Nicole Smith. Now, sirens are kind of going off in Aquanella's head, but she answered that, yes, she did have a daughter named Nicole. And then the officers asked if she had a picture of Nicole. And even now, at this point in the conversation, the gravity of what the officers were implying still hadn't fully sunk in for Aquanella. And so she was just thinking, like, what does this have to do with me? What's going on? And no sooner had that thought crossed her mind did realization begin to dawn. Aquanella realized the police thought the body they found was that of her, Nicole. That just couldn't be. And the thought of it brought Aquanella to her knees, literally, in prayer. She prayed that whoever the police found, that it wasn't her child or anyone's child. She prayed that this was all just some horrible mistake. But Aquanella did get up, pull herself together enough to go ahead and get a picture of Nicole. And she gave that to the officers. When they looked at the photo, both officers shook their heads and proceeded to tell Aquanella that they believed the body they recovered was highly likely that of Nicole. Aquanella couldn't believe her ears. There was no way this was really happening to her about her daughter. Her disbelief led her to call Nicole's school to verify that she was indeed there. 
I guess in her mind, this was just some terrible error and Nicole was right where she should be. And to her relief, believe it or not, an administrator at the school confirmed Nicole was at school. So that was the confirmation Aquanella needed. She hung up the phone and she turned back to the police, telling them excitedly, hey, that body can't be Nicole because her school just told me that she's there. But just as she had those words out of her mouth, the phone rang. It was the school calling back to tell her they'd made a mistake. Nicole never arrived at school. The brief moment of hope Aquanella had was just snatched away, and she had to face the fact that her beloved daughter was gone. The police told Aquanella that Nicole had been beaten, raped, and then shot. They told her that Nicole tried to protect herself by putting her hands up to shield her from the shots, but her killer shot right through her hands and the bullets hit her in the face, killing her. Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, damn, the police really said all that? Like, right there? There was no, like, warming up? I don't know. That to me was just like a lot of information. I haven't heard of so much information in detail like that, especially when they weren't 100% positive that this body was Nicole's. Just seems to me that that was a bit much. You know, the mom's already reeling from the fact that her daughter was killed. And then you're telling her all this information. And obviously, this was completely devastating news and a lot for Aquanella to take in. I mean, it practically ripped her heart to shreds. She couldn't imagine the suffering and the fear her precious baby girl endured. And yet, here the police were, telling her in detail what happened. And as bad as what she'd just learned was... She knew in her spirit that even more happened to Nicole that the police hadn't shared. When the autopsy was performed on Nicole's body, it became clear that Nicole fought hard for her life. The police believe she fought so much so that the killer literally stomped her chest, flattening her breasts. You guys, when I read that, I didn't even know what to think or to believe, or just anything. I can't even fully articulate how I felt, even in this moment, because how hard do you have to stomp on someone to literally flatten their breasts? What kind of piece of shit does that to a child, or person in general? The cruelty, it's just so over the top, and really quite sickening. And if that horrible detail wasn't enough, When Aquanella was able to finally view Nicole's body, she could see dried tears on Nicole's face. More evidence of what those final moments were like for her. And again, this is the part of the story where I just lost it. I mean, I read that. I cried about that so much because I can't imagine seeing those tears. My heart just went out for both of them. I'm just so emotional. (laughs) Telling these stories, guys, it comes at a price, I have to tell you. It's just, it's really sad. Anyway, I digress. The autopsy also confirmed that Nicole had been sexually assaulted and the killer had left DNA, which, to my surprise, was collected. Because when I first read about that, I pretty much just figured that it was a fat chance 
that anything was going to happen with this DNA. But this time I was pleasantly surprised because the combined DNA indexing system, aka CODIS, was already five years old. And that meant that that asshole's DNA got logged right into the system. Unfortunately, this excitement was short-lived when I realized it would be another nine years before there would be a DNA match. Sadly, over the years, things were very hard for Aquanella. She was hospitalized more than once when the depression she fought got the best of her. There were many times when Aquanella simply gave up because the despair and emotional agony were too much to bear. She told Inside Crime that she, quote, just wanted the pain to go away, end quote. And she basically used anything she could to numb it. Aquanella admitted to drinking a case of beer a day to help soothe the ache, but ultimately nothing ever worked because what can work to take that away, right? But the realization eventually came that if she wanted to live, she had to learn to live with this cruel reality. Aquanella had to dig really deep down inside and push to continue. She told Angeline Hartman that this is why she believes in her soul, that things really are mind over matter, because she knew that if she didn't pull herself together, she'd never get any answers. Besides, who would work as hard as she to get justice and answers for Nicole? And herein enters Detective Vincent Velasquez. You may remember him from Bridget Shields' story in episodes 6 and 7. Well, if you don't remember him, please listen to those episodes and do yourself a favor and just Google him. He's kind of the public face of a number of homicide investigations in Atlanta, and rightly so. Not only is he very easy on the eyes, in my opinion, but he's a really good detective. He's known for putting in the work to get cases closed, especially the hard ones, and he often speaks at press conferences about them. So by the time Detective Velasquez got involved, Nicole's case was already cold and had been for many years, eight to be exact. The only thing he could do was read the file and get acquainted with Aquanella as he began his investigation. And that wasn't always very easy. In fact, Detective Velasquez said in a press conference in January 2022 that The relationship with Aquanella ebbed and flowed, but over time they developed a bond like family. And even though they fought about the case from time to time, they stuck with it and stuck together through it all. I want to think that having someone like Detective Velasquez on her side helped Aquanella manage the burden of what happened to Nicole. But in reality, I bet there were indeed times when she felt like he and everyone else was the enemy. After all, her daughter's case was cold pretty much right from the start. We've seen so many times before that the violent crimes committed against Black girls often go unsolved, and law enforcement seems to lack urgency and or care. 
But I am so happy to say that was not the case in Nicole's murder investigation. From the get-go, Atlanta PD seemed to be on top of it, even though there really wasn't much for them to go on. And I think that's really important to mention. I know I can be critical of law enforcement, which, hey, that's my right. But I do want to point out that there are times, many times in fact, when there simply is just not enough evidence or any leads for police to chase down. The heartbreaking result is that investigations cool down and become really cold really fast. Those lulls in the investigation are devastating for families and cause them to harbor resentment and distrust in law enforcement. And this is what Aquanella experienced. But thankfully, as time went on, the bond between her and the detectives working Nicole's case fortified. And then nine years after Nicole's murder, there was finally a break in the case. On Father's Day, 2004, 13-year-old Betty Brown was walking home from a friend's house in East Point, Georgia, just three miles away from where Nicole was murdered. Betty's mother, who I will refer to as Linda because she declined her name to be revealed publicly, was interviewed by Angeline Hartman as well, this time for America's Most Wanted back in 2005. Linda recounted that horrible night that changed her family's life forever. Betty was walking home late in the evening from her friend's house when a man came out of nowhere and started talking to her. He asked her what she was doing, walking alone, what her name was, and several other things. The strange man actually walked with Betty for about a minute, and he talked to her the entire time which I assume he did because he wanted to make sure she was truly alone so he could attack her. Now, Betty definitely felt uneasy and she tried to get away from the man, but he roughly grabbed her and told her that if she didn't cooperate with him, he would kill her. He told her that he had a large knife and he would use it if she didn't give him exactly what he wanted. And then he pulled Betty off the path and proceeded to savagely sexually assault her. Thankfully, the perpetrator kept his word and indeed let Betty live. A terrified Betty ran away as fast as her legs could carry her, and one of her neighbors was driving by and spotted her. They could see that Betty was obviously scared and shaken, so they took her home. Linda, Betty's mom, said when Betty got home, she was screaming at the top of her lungs and crying uncontrollably. Obviously alarmed, Linda asked what was wrong, and that's when Betty told her someone raped her. Linda was appalled and couldn't believe her ears, but there was Betty right in front of her, disheveled and inconsolable. And I just want to take a second here to acknowledge that even though what Betty experienced was probably the worst thing she's ever experienced in her life then and since then, it was very obvious to me that Linda and Betty had a really good relationship because a lot of people who are sexually assaulted never tell their parents. They don't feel comfortable or sometimes they do tell their parents and then their parents drop the ball. Like, they don't believe them. They may gaslight them. They may disregard what they're saying. But Linda didn't do that. And because both Betty and Linda had that great bond, Betty got the help that she needed. 
because Linda took her to the hospital right away and the medical staff performed a rape kit on Betty. In case you don't know, according to endthebacklog.org, a rape kit is used in a forensic examination to collect evidence when a sexual assault has been committed. The exam lasts four to six hours and is very invasive. I can only imagine how additionally traumatic such an examination was to young Betty. But again, I commend her and her mother for the bravery because thanks to that rape kit, the state's crime lab, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, aka GBI, they entered that DNA into CODIS and boom, they got a hit. Betty's rapist and Nicole's killer were one and the same. So they were aware that this guy was still out there violating young girls, but they didn't know who he was. They only knew he committed two rapes and a murder, and this match was an important step forward. And Betty's amazing contribution didn't stop at DNA collection. She also sat with a forensic artist and provided a very detailed description of her attacker. And I have to say, the composite sketch is chilling. The man looks like he's a little touched in the head, but there's something about the expression in his eyes behind his thick Coke bottle glasses that really just freaks me out. There's a link to the picture in the show notes. Have a look at it yourself and let me know what you think. Investigating detectives took the sketch and ran with it to the media, but they didn't stop there. They even went so far as to put up a huge billboard on Greenbrier Parkway in hopes that someone would recognize the man. After all, he had been in the area for several years, and the sketch was so detailed, they were just sure someone had to recognize him. But as fate would have it, several more years would pass before his identity would be revealed. In fact, Detective Velasquez told Angeline Hartman that he believes the national media coverage on America's Most Wanted and Cold Case Files may actually have educated the murdering psycho. Investigators believed that he was likely still out there attacking, raping, and possibly killing young girls and women, but now may be using a condom to conceal his DNA. They speculated that he may have also altered his appearance. The composite sketch that Betty contributed depicted him with a very distinct gap between his two front teeth. And police believe that he may have had that gap closed because of all the media attention. After hundreds of subsequent leads from all over the country and multiple DNA collections, they still never did find the perpetrator. It was a frustrating and surprising blow to the investigation time and time again, but the cold case team never gave up. And in the fall of 2019, Cheryl McCullough, an investigative prosecutor for the Atlanta Police Department and the director of the Cold Case Research Institute, requested that the GBI provide an updated age-progressed sketch of the murdering rapist to show what he may look like at that point in time. I mean, these folks went hard to find this man, and I am so happy to see it. The new sketch was now in color and much more lifelike. Again, they had hopes this would bring someone who knew the man forward. So this new sketch went far and wide, but this time it was accompanied by the following profile of the perpetrator. 
as quoted by Cheryl. Quote, he is somebody that is a serial predator. He's a crime of opportunity. He's organized. He brings the weapon with him and he takes the weapon away with him. The weapon is loaded and he ain't afraid to use it. He's not afraid if people hear the gunshots. He's close enough so he feels like he can blend in and hide in plain sight. Because in both situations, he was walking. There's no car anywhere. So he's walking freely on the path, through the path, through the apartment complexes in these two neighborhoods, end quote. Cheryl goes on to highlight that the two communities in which Nicole was murdered and Betty was raped are in two different cities with two different police departments. While they are side by side, it was important for her to make that distinction when delivering this profile. She continued on with the profile, pointing out that this guy was organized enough to switch the time of day because Nicole was murdered in the morning and Betty was raped at night. She also noted that the man has his own type of victim, preferring young black girls around 14 years old walking alone. Cheryl believed he likely worked a low-level job or several low-level jobs here and there to make ends meet, but wasn't afraid or uncomfortable in the communities he committed acts of violence. She reiterated that this man could blend right in and no one would be the wiser. And that's the part to me that's so scary. The fact that he was just there among everyone day in and day out and no one knew. Anyway, by this time, Detective Velasquez had retired, which actually happened back in 2017, and Nicole's cold case investigation was handed over to Detective Meester. But Velasquez still unofficially worked the case and spoke about it publicly. Meanwhile, technological advancements brought DNA testing into the 21st century. Law enforcement across the nation had come to know and understand the familial DNA testing and how the use of it led to the capture of other high-profile murderers like the Grim Sleeper and the Golden State Killer. Side note, if you haven't watched I'll Be Gone in the Dark on HBO about the Golden State Killer, definitely do yourself a favor and watch it. It's so good, so chilling, so well put together, and it's amazing that, you know, a true crime writer was actually able to contribute to this groundbreaking case. Anyway, definitely check it out. Now, even though shows like CSI and Criminal Minds make it sound like this type of testing is easy as one, two, three, I can assure you it's far from that simple and never moves in a straight line. Basically, the way this testing works is forensic scientists take DNA collected at crime scenes and run it through genealogical databases like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. There are millions of records containing details about millions of people, and investigators have to narrow down those people and then investigate each person. In the Golden State Killer case, it took investigators a full year before they made an arrest because it's such a painstaking process. But with a lot of really hard work and a little luck, Atlanta PD hoped they'd be able to find their killer too. And then, 26 years after her murder, on January 4th, 2022, police announced they had finally identified Nicole's killer. 
While police did not provide the man's name during the press conference, they did later confirm that the killer's name is Kelvin Arnold, a 49-year-old Georgia resident. Unfortunately, as fate would have it again, the murdering SOB was dead, having died just four and a half months prior while in hospice care after succumbing to liver and kidney failure. Oh, talk about bittersweet, right? I watched the news conference, which is also linked in the show notes, and Nicole's mom, Aquanella, and Betty Brown both spoke. They both shared similar sentiments that they're happy to know who's responsible for ruining their lives, but they hate how they were denied the opportunity to confront him. They will never have the chance to see that man shackled and thrown in prison for what he'd done, and law enforcement would not be able to question whether there were other victims. The man died while being taken care of by unsuspecting people. He was probably shown kindness that he never bestowed upon his victims, and then he had the privilege of simply dying, which will happen to all of us one day. So basically, he was able to live his life raining terror on other people without any mortal sense of justice. What a cruel turn of events for those left behind in the wake of his brutality. Kevin Arnold died just shy of 50 years old, and I want to think, in fact, I have to believe that he suffered with that major organ failure before he died. My hope is that he lay on his deathbed in agony and that he thought long and hard about his life and the pain he inflicted on others. I hope that he saw Nicole and Betty's faces along with any other victims we may not know about every single time he closed his eyes. I hope they haunted his dreams and kept him awake at night. I hope that when he took his last breath, He knew the only legacy he left behind was one of misery, pain, and suffering. Nicole didn't deserve to die in such a horrific way. She deserved to make it home and then to school that fateful day. She deserved the chance to grow up, become a pediatrician, fall in love, have kids, travel, do whatever. She deserved to live her life in a manner of her choosing. And Betty didn't deserve a life filled with depression, fear, and pain. She deserved to make it home that night, undisturbed, so she could live the life she dreamed of living. While this monster wasn't brought to justice in the way we all hoped, I am so thankful to know he is no longer living today and can never again hurt anyone else. As always, thanks for listening. Your continued support of this podcast is so appreciated, and you can look forward to a new episode per the regular bi-weekly schedule. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written and produced by Renetta Wright.